good to be here. Love you guys. It's good to be part of the covenant family with you. Um, I'll just jump right in. Paul and Taylor and I regularly get a chance to spend some time with other faith leaders and we discuss our similarities and differences and it's perhaps the favorite thing I get to do. Anyway, there was one day a few months ago where we're discussing the differences in the law that we have and this rabbi, Rabbi Steve, he said, yeah, I mean, we Jews have the, the Torah and the Muslims have Sharia and you Christians basically have lawlessness, which, I mean, he's, you know, half joking. And Paul, gloriously, like the Apostle Paul himself, leaned forward, put his finger up, and he said, I think you mean to say we have the fulfilled law. And then Taylor and I were like, ooh, we started dancing, blowing the shofar, trumpet, and they were tearing their robes and throwing dust in the air. (laughs) That part's not true. Uh, (laughs) But it is accurate that Paul has said, both our Paul and the Apostle Paul, that uh, Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, but that doesn't negate the law. In fact, Matthew, when he talks, of, when, when he tells the story of Jesus reframing, reiterating, reinterpreting the law, Jesus tells us this is the heart of the law and it goes way deeper and is way more impossible than what we're about to dig into here because the heart of the law speaks to our hearts rather than just our actions. So quick side note before we dig in, uh, those same faith leaders and their people and us and our people are getting together in February. We're doing three evenings of keynote speakers and you get to meet these people that don't yet know Jesus and start redemptive relationships with them. Uh, Attendance is mandatory. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, we'd, we'd love to have you, uh, there with that. These, we really, really love these guys. They're very sweet people. Uh, okay. Back to the sermon. Essentially what I'm telling with this story is the, the other major Abrahamic faiths see us as the lawless ones, the ones that, that have no law, which it would make sense because we have been given the law of liberty. They don't have that. But it would be a mistake to say that we're lawless. We have the law of liberty. All right, so let me, we have the the Decalogue, the 10 words. I'm going to back up, give you a flyover because context is king. So I wanna give you some context here. So within the story of Israel, we see God slowly and steadily building up a people for his name, that his people uh, will show the world what he's like. And so we've got this fledgling, growing family uh, of Israel that has just made it out of the heavy burden of slavery in Egypt. Uh, They have just seen all the plagues. They have just been spared of the angel of death because they put the sacrificial blood of the lamb on their doorpost, so the angel of death passed over. They, heard, they were there, they heard the cries of the Egyptians who did not have the lamb's blood on their door, losing all their firstborn. Um, 
they saw Pharaoh change his mind. So Pharaoh let them go and they saw Pharaoh change his mind and chase them down. And they're at the Red Sea and they've seen it parted and they walked across on dry land and they're still worried about Pharaoh getting them. And then they see Pharaoh's army decimated because the walls of water come crashing back down on them. They walked across on dry land, then into the wilderness and then they complain and that we, at least we had meat uh, to eat when we were slaves. And then God literally makes it rain bread and meat. And so God cares for them in the wilderness. I mean, like, that's why this is, that's why the Exodus story is the salvation event of the Old Testament because it's over and over and over. Like insane miracle of God's self-revelation. He's, he has done all of it and they've done nothing except wine. And then, oh sweet, we're saved. And then wine again. And oh, he did it again. Um, so now they've gone through the wilderness, um, found manna and birds and ate. And now they have just made it at our story to Horeb or Mount Sinai. So they're standing at the mountain of God, the same mountain that God met Moses at several, a long time before. And Exodus 19, four uh, through six, God says to his people, this is right before our text. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let me summarize that for you. Um, God says, You have seen me destroy Egypt to win you to bring you close, to make you mine. Now, if you obey, you will be my treasured possession. I've been asking a few people. uh, One of our covenant members, a couple months ago, he asked me, Justin, do you really believe that you're God's favorite? And I was like, don't tell anyone. Yes. And he's like, man, I just, I don't get it. And I'm like, I'm not saying that I'm, Uh, his favorite comparatively or superlatively. But when I encounter God, it's like no one else exists. Like when when (laughs) I asked Nathaniel, I was like, you think you're God's favorite? And he's like, three or four months ago, I would have said, no, that's crazy. But I just had a baby. And I can't look at that baby and not say it. You're my favorite. He has, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession in all the peoples. Uh, Now, in this context, they're used to living in an absolute monarchy. And this Hebrew term means a personal treasure. And God says, I own all things, but this thing is particularly special to me. Now, before you get fussy at me for saying that God has favorites, uh, it's not just that this is a favored people. They have privileges and responsibilities. It's in the same verse there. In the same breath, 
he says, you will be to me, a, you will be a kingdom of priests. The whole lot of you are just gonna be priests. So what's a priest? I'm so glad you asked. A priest, usually from the tribe of Levi, that God chose to minister before his presence. All of you are gonna minister to my presence. (laughs) The priests are the mediators between God and man. So God's telling Israel, if you obey the covenant, listen to my voice, I'll make all of you mediators between God and man. And whoever they mediate to comes into the covenant family. Mm. Why would God want a whole kingdom full of mediators? Because there's loads of estranged children that need to be brought back in. see faces. Loads of people that God longs to call his treasured possession who are not covenanted into the family. So clearly this uh, Exodus 19, four through six is pointing towards the priesthood of the believer, which is you. If you've been rescued from slavery, if you've put the blood of the Passover lamb on the door, that's you. So God says, I'm going to make all of you mediators and then you're going to mediate for others and they will become mediators and that's my plan for the redemption of the world. We ain't even into the Ten Commandments yet. (laughs) Zoom forward a couple thousand years. Who's the ultimate mediator between the king and his creation? (laughs) Jesus. Good job. Yes, it is Jesus. And when he comes on the scene... He says, the kingdom is here. You were a rebel. I'm going to bring you into the kingdom and you start mediating. Become the priest that I've made you. So Jesus brings us into God's presence. We follow him there. And then we get to bring others along with us. So all, we're going to go through the, the 10 commandments in a second, I promise. But all these commands should be digested in the light of the fact that this is God's plan, the redemption of the world. Behold, I am making all things new. He is uh, bringing all things together to himself. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, we're, we're back to the mountain here. The Israelites are camping out at the foot. They know that they're going to cut a covenant with Yahweh. They don't know what is going to be in it. Uh, all they know is that they've seen all these crazy things and they know not to touch the mountain. If they touch the mountain, they have to die. So they're terrifying. It's terrifying. They're terrified. It's a very serious moment, a very solemn moment. And so they consecrate themselves and then God shows up. And it is terrifying. There are thunderbolts and lightning. It's very, very frightening. Thanks. Uh, they're in the middle of nowhere, and then they hear the blast of the trumpet. 
the, the ram's horn that is saying, the, pri- the presence has arrived. It's, uh, the, when I'm praying through this and reading through this, uh, the description of the mountain of God, it's like this, essentially this huge volcano exploding. It's loud, it's terrifying, there's smoke everywhere. So this is where we're at. This is the, now we finally get to today's text. And this is God saying, this is how you will be my possession. This is how you will be my priest. This is how you will be a holy nation. So the Decalogue means 10 words. Uh, I would actually say it's 11 words, but the 11 logue doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. And the reason I say it's, yes, another bad joke, sorry. Uh, the reason I say it's 11 words instead of 10 is because the first one Start, it has two parts. It's, it's 10. But uh, Exodus 20 verse one says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So God starts the 10 commandments with, I am your rescuer and your God. You are the one that I redeemed. That's not just the intro to this one command. That's the intro to, that's the foundation for all of it is that I am your deliverer. (laughs) Now, let me just timeline. Deliverance first, then covenant. Not the other way around. He doesn't say, (laughs) he doesn't come to Israel while they're still slaves and say, hey, Here's these 10 commandments. You follow them, I'll rescue you. That is not, that's the opposite of what happened. He cuts the covenant after they're already rescued, after they're already redeemed. So good. Whew, man, you take a big sigh of relief because we're in the same boat. This is us. He doesn't cut a covenant with us first and then save us. If you've been told that you have to Covenant first, Mm-mm, that's bad theology. That's wrong. Now you do have to obey the covenant. It's not, it's not off the table, but you just don't get to be chosen because of your obedience to the covenant. You're already in, now obey it. And this, I don't want you to see this as a suffocating list of negatives. This is the way to the best life. This is the, like this is following the manufacturer's instructions. If you try to put together a thinking Ikea thing and you don't have the instructions, you're going to have extra pieces. It's not going to turn out, it's going to be like this. I, sorry, Meryl, I will do more Ikea things when I'm not writing a sermon. Uh, but this is just like in the garden. In the garden, God said, don't eat that tree. If you do, death will enter the world. They didn't obey and there were consequences. So this is not stifling. This is the law of liberty. I am the God who makes you free. Do these things and you will be free. In fact, in, in a way, this is a picture of the first recorded DTR in history. Define the relationship. So God has said, I am, the, I am your God who's rescued you already. This is the expectation for continued relationship with me. You want to be my treasured possession? This is what you do. So these are relational 
expectations. The first half is vertical relational expectations. And the second half is our relationship with God image bearers. All right, so expectation number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That sounds like there's other gods. Do we believe that? No. But Israel is coming out of a context of polytheism. It has been drilled into their brains that Pharaoh is divine, that there are a multitude of gods. So they, this is not uh, saying, yeah, there are other gods, but God's the best. No, he's speaking to them where they're at. God is meeting them in their own context, which is really awesome. He meets them where they're at. Uh, and in fact, that uh, same context is partially why God allowed the plagues because it <laughs> dethroned all of the, the gods of Egypt. But essentially God is saying, no competing loyalty is permissible. Expectation number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the first is do not be led astray by the allure of worshiping false gods. The second is do not be led astray by worshiping the true God in a false way. You don't, he's saying you don't need a visual representation. I know you want that, but you don't get it. Not yet. I am not something that is made by your hands. And then he says, I'm a jealous God. That's relational language. <laughs> I am a jealous God. If you make, and then he says, if you make idols, you hate me. Thanks. In fact, in chapter 32 um, of the same, same book, we see that Israel has already done this. It's like 12 chapters from here. Israel already fails miserably. In fact, Aaron even calls the golden calf Yahweh. Yikes. Now, in America today, we don't usually fashion things from wood and rock and stuff like that. Um, but we have idols. We do idolatry a little bit differently. Um, now, the thing about idols, they always disappoint. They promise big and they never deliver. Don't put something in God's place, the throne of your heart. If, if there's a throne inside your heart, let God the, being worshiped how he accepts it on his terms, not on yours. Um, let it be reserved for the king. Don't put something else there. Don't put your spouse on the throne or your kids or your job or your safety on the throne, or your security. Don't put your reputation on the throne. 
If something else is on the throne, then you won't be able to worship him the way that he demands. If you're concerned that you might have some idolatry uh, and you're listening to the Lord and he tells you to do something and you say no, like something kingdom risky, like something makes you feel alive, (laughs) but your parents would say, no, don't do that. Um, If you tell the Lord no when he speaks to you, you have just discovered an idol. Yank it out. Set us free again, Lord. In fact, just in case the Lord comes back before the end of the sermon, I want you to take a second and uh, just ask him right now, Lord, is there something you have in mind? An idol that you want me to forsake? I'll give you a minute. If you heard something, write it down. You feel free to text me or write it on a comment card and I'll call you this week. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I prayed through that question for us and I got three things. I don't know if this is for an individual or what. So Lord, is there something you want me an idol you want me to forsake right now. And I heard a relationship, uh, the praise of men, and false security through keeping something hidden. So if, if any of y'all had written something like that down, I'm looking over my glasses so I can't see your faces. Your... We'll talk. All right, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, In this expectation, in this commandment, it says he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. How is that fair, you may ask? Well, it is perfectly fair. First of all, this is a communal setting. They are not in the individualistic American single person rights. This is a communal setting. And every when a member of the covenant community breaks covenant, the whole community suffers. If you're taking notes, you ought to write that down. When a member of the covenant community breaks covenant, the whole community suffers, especially those closest to the offender. That thing that the Lord may have just whispered to you, if you don't deal with that, it is affecting the family. (laughs) If you have hidden sin, get it out. Because God is so patient and compassionate. He's willing to give favor to a thousand generations. Versus three or four of the other one. (laughs) You know what's not fair. That's not fair. Three or four versus a thousand. If you're going to say something's not fair, I say that all the time because favor is not fair. That's how we talk about unfairness. Sorry, a different sermon altogether. I have three little kids. (laughs) It's not fair. Don't you say that, son. (laughs) 
Uh, I would also argue that the visiting the iniquity of the fathers, fathers on the children is more to talk about the natural consequences of actions felt by children and their children. Uh, expectation number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In the Hebrew mindset, a name is representative of the nature and character of the person. Names have meaning, they're important, and this is the most holy name. So God's name to him is intensely precious. It should be intensely precious to us as well. And his name is not God. It's not Elohim. It's not Theos. It's not Allah. Those are all titles that mean God. (laughs) This is different. This is the one where God spoke it directly to Moses and he said, That's that's separate, holy, different. So use it in reverence and honor and not lightly. Expectation number four. Ooh, this is a big one. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this one. You probably already have had a a couple conversations with me about this one. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. You guys are sojourners. It's talking to you. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. One of the territorial spirits over Houston is that we are tempted to find our identity in what we produce. I mean, you can walk outside these doors and see it. We are tempted to prioritize our production over all things. The enemy over Houston does not like for believers to find their identity in what God calls them. He does not want us to understand that we are his treasured possession if we keep covenant. He wants us to be always working and striving for acceptance not working from a place of acceptance. I'm told that there are some evangelical ministers that teach that we are no longer required to Sabbath. (laughs) Yikes. Jesus has some words about uh, making little of the law. This made it into top 10. The problem is that Sabbath precedes the giving of the law here. This is not the first time it's mentioned. God modeled the Sabbath day rest in creation and he commanded it during the wandering in the wilderness. And Tony hit it out of the park last week when he talked about it. There was one line that he said that knocked me on my, out of my chair. Uh, he said, God, you've been faithful always. We know that God has been faithful always, but what if he's not tomorrow? Like that's the lie. So the pressure's on you, essentially, if you're not Sabbathing. It's because you believe that the pressure's on you. 
when, when, you know, everyone knows what a tithe is. You, because you're part of the covenant community, you give a portion of your money. All of your money comes from God. You give a portion of it back to him. Sabbath is a tithe of your time. He has given you all of your time. Sabbath is giving a portion to him, saying that you have given it, you have given us all of it. It belongs to you. If you don't Sabbath, you're breaking covenant. (laughs) And this is a command, it's not a suggestion. However, I would like to say that man was not made for the Sabbath. Actually, I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. In fact, look at that. God gave us a law for our own benefit. That's all of it. All of this is for our benefit. The whole story of the law is that God has given it to us as a gift. I've been part of a few battles alongside some folks that have had some major woundings and brokenness. And we have waded through the mess and fought together. And the Lord has spoken to them and set them free. And then two weeks later, they're back in the mess. And I'm like, what is going on here? That's not normally the story. Usually God speaks to someone and there's freedom, healing, transformation, um, but I was, so there's a couple people in particular, this is like two or three months ago, and I'm really angry because there's two folks I'm walking with and they keep getting back in the mess. It's like, we spend a lot of time, they get a lot of freedom. Two weeks later, they're back in the mess. It's worse off. And so I was sitting uh, right where Joe is actually during a sermon. And Taylor, I don't remember what your sermon was about, but the Lord was speaking. So people tell me that all the time after I, after I teach. They're like, hey, great sermon. I didn't hear it, uh, but the Lord was speaking. Um, so I'm sitting there and I'm praying. I'm like, why does this mess keep coming back? And the Lord made it abundantly clear. He said, there's still an open door. You, the house has been swept and made clean, but there's still a point of disobedience that is letting this darkness back into their lives. And I said, okay, Lord, what is it? And he said, they refuse to rest. So I texted them both and I, was, I asked them, hey, how's your Sabbathing been? And they said, oh yeah, we don't Sabbath separately. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. Um, are there any other of the 10 commandments that you're comfortable with breaking on a regular basis? This made it into the top 10. So we started digging into Sabbath together and in a few weeks they'd made more progress than the hours and hours of times that we had worked together before. (laughs) Ultimately, Sabbath is an issue of trust, control, and dependence. It's harder for those who've grown up in volatile homes to Sabbath. Those people often feel like it's impossible to rest because there is this expectation that they have to always be vigilant. Uh, They may feel like they have to manage others' emotions and control things so that someone doesn't fly off the handle or something bad doesn't happen. If you're bad at Sabbathing, why don't you just close your eyes for a second. Let me speak to you directly. If you are bad at Sabbathing, 
God is not waiting for you to screw up so he can yell at you. You don't have to be vigilant. He will be vigilant for you. He will protect you. You can let go of control. You are his treasured possession. He beckons you to come and rest. You've been striving for so long, it's time for that to change. Now you get to start a different type of striving where you strive to enter his rest. That's the striving he has for you. But you can't enter his rest unless you let go of the control. You can't open your hands to receive from him if your hands are closed on the control. All right, you can open your eyes. (laughs) <laughs> or wake back up, I don't know. <laughs> hey, if uh, if you guys want to start a Sabbath support group, write it on the uh, the comment card and put it in the back. Um, I mean, I'm not going to make you do homework and stuff, but a text thread might be beneficial. Uh, some brief practical thoughts about Sabbath uh, because I want to I want to give you some. How do I change this? Uh, it doesn't have to be on a Saturday or a Sunday, but it needs to be once a week, probably the same day if you can. Like Taylor doesn't Sabbath on Sundays because it's a full work day for him. Uh, except during his sabbatical, I'm hoping he did that. Uh, you are not allowed to be productive in your usual way. So you may need to make preparations beforehand. That will take some discipline. Um, the re- so, and we can see this because of manna. God said, I'll let you gather it. I'll let you work six days. But on the last day, you can't. You cannot be productive. <laughs> you got to trust me to do it for you. And then whatever you do on Sabbath needs to be restorative. What I mean by that is that it ought to be something that you can do as an act of worship. Some like to garden, some run, some read. Sorry. Uh, Some spend time with other believers. This is a time to receive from the Lord, not produce. Um, I actually like to mow the lawn. I know that kind of sounds productive. it's not anything like my normal work. It's definitely different. It's a break. And when I'm mowing the lawn, I'm spending time with the Lord. I am enjoying his creation. I'm worshiping. This is not something, I don't consider it a chore. So I'm mowing the lawn. I'm praying. Sometimes I'll run into the house sweaty and nasty and be like, where's my journal? I need to write something down. Um, <laughs> and then I would also encourage you to prioritize family on Sabbath and covenant family, uh, you are welcome to bring those that are outside the covenant family into your rest, but I wouldn't take, I wouldn't go out of the rest to do that. Does that make sense? Okay. Let them come into your rest. You don't go out of it. And then once you get good at Sabbathing, this is fascinating. You'll realize that you can actually carry that rest with you back into your work week. In fact, you start getting really good at it and you are abiding, man, that's going to change the whole way you work. It, on, on a, 
even to the details of how you work. You start working from a place of rest and dependence on God, even worshiping God through your workday and bringing him into the office with you. So you get a problem at work, you're like, okay, Lord, what would you do to fix this? Dependence is the sweet spot. Whatever sermon I preach, I find a way to put that in there. Dependence is the sweet spot. So even if, I mean, if you're coming from a place of rest, from a place of dependence on God, and you have an issue at work and you bring the Lord into it, he can work with you. Like he made us for relationships. That includes your job. You don't have to have your... I have a relationship with God hat and then uh, I'm at work now, I can't. Like, that's silly. I have uh, several friends that we've talked about this and they have brought God into their work station. There's a guy named John and he used to be a mechanical engineer for the oil industry and his team would come together. They'd be like, we've been working on this project for like three weeks. We can't figure out this problem. And he's sitting at the table and he's just, okay, whatever. Peace of God, and uh, as they're describing the problem, he gets up, he gets, goes to the whiteboard, draws some image, and goes and sits down. And his team is like, how did you do that? He fixed the problem. Because he's sitting there, he's like, okay, Lord, what would you do about this? Oh, there's an idea. And he solves the, the thing that they've been working on for weeks. I, there's a lot of stories we have about this because God wants to be in relationship with you. All right, moving right along. That can only happen if you are in his presence resting. If you are working for acceptance, you can't, you can't receive that. You got your hands so tight around control. All right. Expectation number five, honor your father and mother. Here, I'm going to have to go a little bit faster because you got a double sermon today. Uh, We see a shift. The first four Words are centered around the vertical relationship to God. And now we see a shift to the horizontal relationship to family. This is the first command with a promise. Honor your parents and he will reward you with a long life in the promised land. So give them the honor that they are due and treat them as the image bearers that they are and honor the place of authority that God has given them. Excuse me. That goes against our nature because we desire power and we struggle against all commands to submit. But God has set up authorities and divinely orchestrated the structure of the family. Number six, you shall not murder. Now, this uh, Hebrew word applies to humans. It's not animals. Uh, It doesn't apply to, so you can eat meat. Uh, Doesn't apply to war or capital punishment or self-defense. It just says don't commit murder. Uh, This is not a big surprise to us today. I think pretty much all the Laws in all the lands frown on murder. Um, but Jesus, he had to, to, to tweak it. Jesus said, you're guilty of murder if you hate someone. Ugh, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Number seven, don't commit adultery. See, this is another one of those territorial spirits over Houston, guys. We're number one for infidelity as a city in the nation. We are, we have a huge human trafficking problem. Uh, We need some help. This is a big one over our city. And Jesus, again, 
interprets this law as not merely the physical act of adultery, but says that it's an act of the heart. The inward lust. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He is serious about this. The physical act is the outworking of the spiritual condition of the heart. The body may commit the act, but the heart is where the sin was birthed. And so for the holy nation that God is setting up, all sexual immorality is unacceptable. Mm, Jesus free Houston from this. If you want to see how much of a war we are in, drive down Richmond or Westheimer. The enemy isn't even sneaky about it. I was driving and praying over these places and there's one place that has two crouched lions by the door, like hidden in the, in the, the bushes. Sin is crouching at your door. It's going to devour you. There's another one that there's a statue of a woman holding a soldier who's passed out and, hold, and the soldier's holding a broken sword. The enemy's not even sneaky about this, y'all. If you regularly find yourself repenting for the same thing, it's time for you to reach out for help. We confess regularly to God. Do it early, do it often. And we should have a close community with one or two safe believers that know everything about us. But sometimes there's need for outside help. There's no shame in that. Better to get free. It's so much better in the light. Darkness will kill you. Put it on a connect card. We'll keep your information safe. Um, expectation number eight. You shall not steal. <laughs> There's not a lot I can add to that one. Don't do it. Uh, the, the Bible values personal property. Don't take what's yours. That's also a trust issue. The heart of God is justice. So don't steal. Work for it. Don't steal. Uh, expectation number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's courtroom language. Um, but the weird thing about the Ten Commandments is there's courtroom language juxtaposed to heart language. Like, yeah, the legal thing is you don't go to court and lie about someone. And then the next one <laughs> is something that is only in your heart. So this law is thought, word, and deed. And we have failed. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Expectation number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Essentially, this means do not be overcome with improper desire. This is a longing for something that doesn't belong to you. And it's an, a very interesting way to end the law because this is only internal. Coveting is something that you could do for a hundred years and no one would ever know unless that sin gave birth to others. Eve started here. She coveted the fruit. David with Bathsheba started here. He coveted. And then David ends up breaking like half the other commandments because this one. The reason the law ends here is because it's totally internal. And the times that we break God's covenant, 
begin in the heart. So real quick, the reaction of the people to all this. Verse 18, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So how does Israel react to this new covenant? They're so frightened that they understandably, though wrongly, say, let God speak to you, Moses. You pass that word to us. If we hear him directly, we will die. So they wrongly respond in unhealthy fear. And they think that God is going to crush them. Makes sense. They're shaking, the mountain is shaking. But Moses steps in as the mediator and reassures them, reassures them that crushing them is not God's desire. His desire in giving the law is to test his people. Will you obey it? Will you keep the covenant that I'm cutting with you? The second purpose of the law in that verse is so that Israel will have the type of fear or reverence that will lead to obedience. True fear of the Lord will bring about fighting sin. And in our brokenness, in our natural state of rebellion, we stand with Israel at the foot of the mountain of God, trembling. Equally desperate for a mediator to go up the mountain. Into the cloud of smoke, because we know we can't do it on our own. <laughs> I don't know if you're keeping a tally of those, those laws that you're good at or not good at, but I have some bad news for you the first half of the gospel. We've broken all of them. We're guilty. We stand guilty. Whether or not we've carried out the actions in our flesh, we've committed them in our heart a thousand, thousand times. James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles on one point has become guilty of all. That is why this house, this community, this family doesn't have sin shock. You know sin shock where someone tells you something, you're like, oh my gosh, that's really terrible. We don't do that here. (laughs) Because we're all in the same boat. We are all equally desperate for a mediator to go up the mountain into the cloud of smoke. (laughs) We're in the same boat. And Moses was a great mediator. Not perfect, but he did a pretty good job. Now, just a real quick fly over into the New Testament. Moses is mentioned a few times in the New Testament. But there's this one time in Luke chapter nine, Jesus is, he goes up a mountain and is transfigured. He starts getting a very shiny face and bright, shiny clothes. And Moses and Elijah appear. It's a long time after their time. They appear out of nowhere up on this mountain And Luke 9, verse 31, says they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, Jesus's own exodus. And then there's this big cloud that overshadows them on this mountain. And then a voice came out of the cloud. And it says, the voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Does this sound familiar to anyone? (laughs) This is my son, my chosen one, my treasured possession. 
And he's taking an exodus and taking my people with him. Not only is Jesus the new and better Moses, but he is the same spotless lamb whose blood we put on our doors. There is no better mediator than a son and a son who is chosen. And he says, listen to him. That's the same thing he said in Exodus 19. Listen to me. Listen to my words. Keep my covenant and I'll make you a treasured possession, a holy nation, a holy nation and a priesthood, a kingdom of priests. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us because he's the new and better mediator, the perfect mediator. Let me pray for us. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you. You're so good and gracious and kind and merciful. And what a good, I mean, you even tie it together at the end. What a, you are a storyteller, Lord, and you have made this epic story that we get to be part of. Thank you that you have done it all. And that even though we are continual covenant breakers, you are the covenant keeper to a thousand generations. Continue to set us free. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to new levels of freedom. And let us honor you the way you deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.